Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. There you'll read, learn, and may comment about her life as a 21st century wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. Just being a surgeon is quite an accomplishment. Don't we all agree? But my guest today is more than that. Dr. Lowry Barnes is an orthopedic surgeon who is also a businessman and an inventor. This good doctor holds numerous patents on orthopedic devices and hip and knee implants, all developed and designed to improve surgery success and patient wellness. Barnes, of course, is an expert in his field and lectures nationally and internationally on joint replacement surgery. He established the Hip Knee Arkansas Foundation, a nonprofit and research center that further studies patients with arthritis, which I think if you live long enough, everybody gets. He is a prolific writer and on the editorial board of numerous medical journals. In fact, he's been on so many boards that I dare not list them at the risk of boring everybody to death, but it was a paragraph. And it goes without saying he has many awards and accolades. Leaving no stone unturned, Dr. Barnes is known nationally not only for his efficient surgeries, but also for his business creativity. He is an expert on health care reform, and to coincide with our recent health care system changes, he initiated an innovative payment system for his patients that we'll learn more about today. I'm really curious about that. Of all his many accomplishments, Dr. Lowry Barnes, orthopedic surgeon, inventor, creative businessman, says it's his participation with Operation Walk that he considers one of his most rewarding aspects of his career. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table Dr. Lowry Barnes. Thank you. He's been up since three. I'm over there about to give him some coffee in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) What's Operation Walk? Because it's different than what we do on a daily basis. On a daily basis, we're taking care of patients for insurance companies, and we're dealing with paperwork and doing what we do on a daily basis. Operation Walk is a program started by Dr. Larry Doerr, a total joint surgeon in California, and his first trip was to Russia, and he realized that there was something that we could be doing internationally to help patients who don't have the benefit of being um, able to get hip and knee replacements. And so now there are about 15 chapters around the country that do that, and we go to different countries. I've been to India, Peru, uh, Trinidad, and um, back to Peru, uh, doing operations for patients who otherwise couldn't get it. So we, we get there on the morning, the first, first morning, we see patients in the office to see who's candidates for surgery. And there may be, unfortunately, 250, 300 people mm. hoping to get surgery. And we can only do about 50 in a three-day period. We have usually five or six surgeons from around the country who are working with a team. We take everything with us, not just the anesthesiologist and, and the people, but all the equipment that, that's necessary because most of the countries where we work don't have what we need. So it's very rewarding to have these patients um, who've not been able to walk very well get joint replacements and get their life back. The things we learn is these patients um, 
they're tough. Here, we know about our opioid epidemic and um, the problems that we have with our pain medicines. These patients take Tylenol, and at the time when we first started, they were taking Darvacet, something we don't have anymore, for their post-operative pain. No major narcotics, and they just function. There was a lady I took care of in Peru that had both her hips had essentially auto-fused, so she, she really couldn't sit very well. She couldn't do much because her hips were so stiff. To go to the bathroom, she had to go to the shower. Oh. So we did both her hips at one setting. She took nothing for pain medicine afterwards and um, was sitting and walking the next day and going to the bathroom like others go to the bathroom. You don't, you don't see those too often in our normal practice in America. You don't see those patients who are just so bad that they can't function that you really can make that kind of impact. We treat patients who have arthritis and get them out of pain and improve function, but it's rare that you change somebody that much. No wonder it's so rewarding. It's like missionary work. Exactly. When you say you take everything, does that mean you have to charter a big plane? You can't go on. Do you go on a commercial plane? No. So, um, yeah, we go commercially. Uh, the people do, and then we send cargo um, before we go, which is always a challenge getting it through customs. Oh, I bet. Is it machines or is it just devices? So sometimes it requires anesthesia machines that are not there, but often it's devices, dressings, drapes, bandages. So how many, you got five or six doctors. How many is the whole team? Usually 35, 40 people. And you stay how long? Uh, five days. And there'll be two people st- usually stay a little bit longer to make sure everybody does okay postoperatively. How so do you pick the city, the, t- the country you're going to go to? Each of the chapters around the United States have certain areas where they go. So um, I've been with a group from Maryland, and um, Paul Canusia leads that group, and he's now leading it as part of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We brought Operation Walk into it, um, into this big organization a year ago because Larry's reaching retirement age, et cetera, and we, we want his dream and, and what's become so successful to live on. Do you, um, you, go, do you go every year? No. Um, Simon Mears, one of our partners here, um, I met him in India. He was working at Johns Hopkins at the time. And um, I met him in India, operated with him there. When I moved from private practice, I'd been in private practice most of my career, moved to the university a little less than five years ago. And I knew that Simon had moved to Dallas and was doing private practice work, and he's truly an academician at heart, great teacher, great researcher, great surgeon. And so I called Simon and said, you know, if you ever get bored doing what you're doing, We've got a spot for you in Arkansas doing academics again. He said, I'm bored. When can I come look? <laughs> so now we alternate years because he's been a big part of Operation Walk as well. So when you come back and you have to see Americans, and we all know we're spoiled, me included, how do you make that jump back into caring for these people when you've been like, you you don't have it bad. You should see what I've just seen. Yeah, you know, we, we feel that about ourselves too, not just our patients we're taken care of, but we see a whole different side of the world and – a civilization that don't have the benefits we have so it's not just about our patients so it's almost like coming back from war you're like almost in these different cultures and you come back and you're like i can't it's hard to get back into thinking about the materialistic way that we live here right. the, the ease of our life yeah the you know we have been able to do it in the united states as well it's we don't do it as much in the united states now in private practice we did have a few events here um once a year where we could do them now, because of the Affordable Health Care Act and, and 
more universal coverage, it's harder to do those things because yeah. because patients are expected to have insurance and coverage, and so it's it's covered for their plan. So there's really no this is charity work. So it's hard to do charity work that way. Yeah. And you're saying that there's no there's there's not that much need for charity work because they've got uh, they've got insurance now. Correct. For what we do, that's right. That's correct. And, and here in our state with expanded Medicaid, there's um, certainly there's access. So um, it sounds like when I read about you that you kind of always knew you wanted to be a doctor. You came right out of school. So neither nobody in my son, in either side of my family had ever been to college even. But when I was like five or six, seven years old, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I just kind of got lucky that I was introduced to orthopedics in high school and loved it. And I thought early on that's what I wanted to do. And um, went to med school here, did residency in Little Rock. The chairman was Carl Nelson at the time. He was a total joint surgeon. I loved what he did. One of my grandmothers had rheumatoid arthritis and was essentially crippled by orthopedic surgeons who didn't know how to take care of patients with the disease process she had. So, you know, she's 85 years old, could work the New York Times crossword puzzle faster than anybody, but couldn't get from her bed to her chair without assistance. And not so much because of her disease, but because of her treatment. My other grandmother had breast cancer, had her hip replaced, and the orthopedic surgeon thought he was operating for an arthritic hip. It was actually metastatic breast disease. It was missed. She went in to have her hip replaced for arthritis. She'd had breast cancer 20 years earlier, and her it was not arthritis. It was actually cancer that had spread to her hip over that long period of time. Oh. And so, so I saw these things. This was years ago, and we've come a long way. Our imaging technology is so much better now. Our procedures are better. When you say imaging technology, you need MRIs? Certainly MRIs have changed what we do. Let's talk about what your first operations were like compared to what they're like today. Sure. So, um, <laughs> I can't even imagine. When I finished residency, so that was in 1991, the average length of stay for a hip or knee replacement was 12 days, which was including a p- one day preoperatively. Now um, 90-something percent of our patients go home the next day. Is that because... Uh, health insurance won't pay, or is that because it's such an improved uh, uh, oper- operation? Yeah, it has very little to do with pay. It's re- it's re- we now realize that we have we made a bigger deal out of it than it was, and we were scared about protecting patients. Patients are probably safer at home. You're used to the bacteria you have in your own home. You're not used to my bacteria or other people's bacteria, so you you know back in your own environment is the safest place to be. And now we've got great data to show it. So we know that patients who leave the hospital after joint replacement, go to a skilled nursing facility, go to a rehab hospital, they have a higher infection rate and a higher readmission rate and more costly care. Some people have no choice because they don't have the family support. Correct. We're fortunate in Arkansas. Most of our patients can find help. And um, so we we send very few patients to those facilities now. We're a family-oriented state, I think. Do you happen to know when the very first knee replacements were made? Was yeah, it in the 50s? Yeah, so in the certainly there were some done in the 50s. It got more popular in uh, mid-60s, um, same hips a little bit earlier. And um, the, earlier res- the early results were not great. They were pain-relieving operations, but not so much function-improving. So they had tremendous progression over the last 60 years. Yes, 
Because I think you used to come out of surgery with a big knee that would never bend again right. Well, we hope, I'm sure they hoped they they would bend, but there was a different type of replacement early on. The bottom were hinges, so the two people, pieces were hooked together, very much like what a lot of my patients think when they come to see me, that we're going to chop off the end of the thigh bone, chop off the top of the shin bone, and put two pieces of metal that are connected together, and that's going to be your new knee joint. What are you going to do? In reality, it's really a resurfacing now. So on the femur, we make five little cuts to trim the bone, and it's capped with a piece of metal, using chrome cobalt metal. And the shin bone, the tibial side, has a flat cut made of it, taken off a few millimeters of bone with a metal base plate being placed on it with a plastic insert. And then we trim off some of the kneecap and put a plastic button on it. So it's really very little bone resection. It's a resurfacing operation. Do really. you harvest the, some uh, ligaments? To use to rebuild any? No, the, the ligaments are actually substituted for. So the implant itself does that. And, and so we ta- actually take the ligaments out on the inside part, the anterior cruciate ligament. The, the, the you, don't ha- you don't need it. What's an, what's an ACL? Is that a ligament? It is. That's the anterior cruciate ligament. You don't, need that, the, need, you don't need that one anymore? Not with a knee replacement. And we actually take out the posterior cruciate ligament as well, which is the one behind it, because the implant can give the stability to the knee that those ligaments do. We talked a little bit about um, the history of orthopedics, the evolution, I guess I should say, of orthopedic surgery. Great name. That's one of the implants I designed was the evolution knee. Really? You read something, didn't you? No. Yes, I did. I mean, yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I knew that. Uh, So, yeah, it is absolutely evolution. And so let's talk about that. How did the idea to reinvent hip and knee devices come about? Well, we're always trying to make improvements, not just me, orthopedic surgeons and engineers around the country saying, how can we make the knee more like the normal knee, increase function for patients, and have it last longer? So the the one you referred to, the evolution, is one that um, was started by a company called Wright Medical, now has been sold to to Microport, who bought the hip and knee line from them. And there, were a seri- and there were five or six of us on the design team who took a previous iteration of what's called a medial pivot knee. So the, a lot of different designs of knees based upon saving this ligament, saving that ligament, how the knee functions in kinematically how it bends. And this design functions more like a normal knee in that the inside part of the knee acts different than the outside part of the knee, just like ours does. The stability of our knee comes from the inside, and the outside portion is, um, has more laxity to it, and, real, and that's where the, what allows flexion of your knee, but still has stability from the inside part. So we reproduce that in a knee implant. And fortunately, it's now become very popular in that many other companies have now m- mimicked that design. Is it, a, is it an actual device, or is it a procedure? It's a device. Did you have to get a patent? And you got a patent on it. Your five, your group of five decided, this is great. Let's get a patent on it. Yeah, so there are a series of patents associated with an implant, as you might imagine, because there are a lot of different changes. So one might be related to a special instrument that allows us to size the thigh bone a certain way. Another might be related to how the plastic locks into the metal. So each implant can have a number of dip- different patents if what you're developing or designing is different enough than what's been designed before. I never thought about that. You've got to make the tools. You've got to design tools because every time you try to do anything, 
in construction or in sewing or in anything. It's about the tools. Instruments matter. They really do matter. How many patents did you end up making? I don't know how many I have them. 10 or 12, I guess. So do you have them as an individual or do you have them as this team of doctors? So they're as a team. So they're often, it depends on who's working on what part. You get residuals from it or does your team get residuals? uh, Both. So the individual gets it as it is um, like that company has um, no longer get residuals from that. I sold out my, bought out my contract years ago. More recently, my mentor, uh, Dick Scott from Boston, who I did my fellowship with, he and I and one other gentleman who's an engineer who had worked with Dr. Scott in the past, the three of us started a new company. At the time, it was called Responsive Orthopedics and developed a new type knee and hip and looking at a, a prosthesis that was less expensive and uh, served the needs of our population well because it had all the same modern capabilities. And then Medtronic, one of the large companies in the uh, healthcare world, bought our company a few years ago. So. But it seemed like the he, the knee and the hip would not be able to use the same procedures. They, they don't at all. Maybe They're the same instruments. But not may- the same instruments, not the same implants, not the same procedure. They're totally different. How long does it take to develop a procedure like that? Um, procedure's still developing. We make minor changes each year of the 50 years. Implants um, can take the design process, may take a year, but getting approval from the from the FDA and kind of going through the whole process may take four or five years. So this this new evolution knee, what did it solve? It gave them what we think is a more normal feeling knee. So they have stability. One of the challenges you have for knee replacement is that if you go downstairs or do rotatory motion, sometimes your thigh bone can slide on your shin bone. This implant gives you stability. What do you think is, of, of all of those surgeries, which one's your favorite one that you think you've had the best success ratio on? Whichever one I'm doing at the time. Good answer. What is the biggest hurdle patients have to overcome after surgery? Um, you know, oftentimes it's, it's before surgery, not after surgery. It's deciding it's time. And unfortunately, it's um, we have certain groups of patients who don't get knee replacement at the same rate as others because we don't know if it's is it a health literacy issue? Is it a fright issue? Is it an access issue? And those are kind of things, some of the things we're trying to figure out now, how we can make sure that more patients who need knee replacements can get it. Is it better to put it off for as long as you can, or does that actually hurt the operation when you get ready Great to do Great question. It? If you get too far, you get too many deformities, your, your, ang- your leg gets too angled or you can't get your leg straight for a long period of time, then patients don't do quite as well. But you don't do, want to do it too early either. Used to, about the time I was training, we were very careful. They were, it, these operations were for really for older patients because they didn't know how long they were going to last. I was when I was in Boston doing my fellowship. I chair Dr. Clem Sledge. We're seeing a patient in their early fifties or so, and uh, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, bad. I can't remember if it was a hip or knee. It's a bad problem, but they need to be older." And he said, "Why would you do that? They're at their prime of their life now." Why would you tell them they have to wait? They can't can't do the things they want to do now. So why don't you take care of them? If there's problems later, fix them then. And that's that's where we are in joint placement now. How long do they last? We don't know for sure because everything is a little different. Each model changes, and unfortunately, when you say how long does it last, it matters on about a lot of things. How good is the surgeon? How well is it placed? If it's a knee, how well are the ligaments balanced? How well is it cemented into place? 
how good is the component itself, if it's the plastic that's being used. So there are a lot of things that affect it. And we, we often say on average 15 to 20 years for both hips and knees. Some last much longer, some last much shorter. And that's, that's a problem. Um, the early failures of joint replacement are a problem. I think that's probably what scares people. Yeah. We have a very large uh, revision practice. So you're saying don't wait. We can always redo it again later because you're at the prime of your life. Why be miserable during the prime of your life? Under certain, I mean, if you meet all the other criteria, you fail non-operative management, you've done physical therapy, you've tried anti-inflammatory medications, Tylenol, you've gotten your weight to an appropriate level, but you still have end-stage arthritis. You just answered all my questions. Good. What is preventative? Weight level. What were the other ones you said? Uh, strength is important. So especially for the knee, the muscle in the front of your thigh, the quadriceps. Should you be doing weight training? Uh, certainly um, weight training is good for everyone because it helps build your bones to build the bones. It helps prevent osteoporosis. Bones respond to stress. So if you have a load on it, that helps the bone form new bone. But the um, the quadriceps muscle, really just doing leg lifts and bicycling are enough to keep that muscle toned. Many people think just walking is enough, but it's not for that muscle. And we see that after knee replacement. Patients sometimes do their therapy early. Then they may come back in six, eight months later and say, all of a sudden my knee hurts. And we test them, and their quadriceps strength is half what the other one is. Because so they're walking. You, well, just they just hadn't been doing exercises. They had kind of got past their pain. And the therapy early on, and they got on with their normal life, kind of quit. And so now they're weak. And so then the joint starts taking more of the load. Having muscles that function well across the front of your knee, and the dynamic stabilizers of the knee, so it takes stress off the knee. So we get the patients get their muscles stronger. We send them, test their strength, show them what, how much weaker they are, send them to therapy, build up their strength, retest them. Invariably, when they get stronger, their pain gets better. I think that's true with every ache in your body is go out and do a little exercise it seems like as i get older though i want to do more swimming it's great for you it doesn't seem to hurt your joints when i ride a bike it seems to make my joints hurt yeah it depends on the the problems you have bikes are great for hip and knee replacements because they encourage motion and it's um and it's good for arthritis too because you get motion that's not weight bearing and swimming is the best um especially with the hip because it's a it's great for after hip replacement to have a patient get in the pool. Oftentimes I'll, I'll turn to my PAs and we're seeing a patient and say, been in a pool or not been in a pool? Or, it's a game. Or they say, you know, I've been swimming. We, we look at each other knowing mm-hmm. they're doing so well because they've been in the pool and they've gotten their motion and they're not tight. So I would think that you have a problem with, with people doing their PT, physical therapy. It does seem like my son who had uh, ACL replacement because of a Someone hit it. He was on a bike and some a car hit him, and he had to have ACL replacement. And they harvested his hamstring. Sure, which was fascinating for, for everybody listening. Um, but he he won't do his physical therapy. Mom, get him going. I know, but so I think about you. Are you frustrated all the time about that? No, because most of my patients do their therapy because they've it's a different type thing. So your son had an injury. Mm-hmm. When we, he was normal one day and then has a problem and not really into the whole fix. And he's young. Yeah. If, he you've, had, if you've had arthritis for 10 years and affecting your life every day and you get an operation, mm-hmm. you're pretty. De- most patients are pretty determined to do what they're supposed to after surgery to get the benefit from their, their surgery. So do vitamins work? Because you see people all the time talking about take vitamins and it'll help. 
I don't, not that I know of for arthritis. You're like the 20th person. They say joint pain. Take take vitamins to well, gly- glycosamine. Yeah, so no proven benefit for chondroitin and glucosamine. There are some animal studies that show some relief, some cartilage changes. Some patients swear by it, and my answer is if you take it and you think it helps you, keep taking it. That's right. There are no side effects. That's, no of. Okay, good. Any advice for sufferers who might be out there besides diet, exercise, was there something else? Uh, uh, pain management? Yeah, over-the-counter pain meds usually, so Tylenol, um, anti-inflammatory medications. The biggest thing I can tell you is no patient should be taking narcotics for arthritis, and no doctor should be describing just prescribing narcotics for hip or knee uh, arthritis. That's for sure. I love talking about the work you did in, uh, what was it called, Operation Walk? Right. Operation Walk is kind of a missionary thing where a bunch of doctors get together. It's funny when you get older how you want to help everybody. You notice that? No doubt. How long have you been doing Operation Walk? No, 12 years, something like that. Oh, long time. So, so even when you were in your hard work and uh, career, you were doing it. I'm still hard working. You are. I should tell everybody, you look like you need a nap. You've been up since 3 <laughs> come in the morning. Come on, come on. <laughs> um, but you're right about giving back. I mean, it, I, am, I left private practice about five years ago because I wanted to be back in academics and you know, it's the next generation of orthopedic surgeons, the next generation of students. People need to know that it's fun to be a doctor without, uh, despite all the challenges that may come with um, being a physician with paperwork and all the, the, med- the financial challenges that we face. There's nothing like having a patient appreciate what you've done for them and changing their lives. And it's, so I'm glad to be back over there and working on that and building the orthopedic program you talk about business, so we're you know we've certainly improved the business of orthopedics at UAMS as well. We've grown significantly, and it's um, it's fun. We've got a great team. We've got, we're lucky to have UAMS. Yes, we are. Uh, I think it's really nice that you're uh, paying your wisdom forward. Well, thanks. Speaking of the expense of becoming a doctor, it's two hundred thousand dollars in debt to become a doctor today right now which is why people are specializing because you've got to pay that debt back but we don't have enough general practicing doctors that's not why people become specialists why most people become specialists some may but most of most people figure out where their niche is and where they think they can do the most benefit right now we are at a crushing 1.5 trillion dollars in student debt that's unbelievable by 2030, we will have 50,000 doctor shortage in primary care. Right. No doubt it is a major challenge. Is it because it's so expensive to go to school to become a doctor that p- low-income families cannot do it? Yeah, I think some of it's that, and some of it is that, um, unfortunately, doctors don't make as much as, as much as their peers who have put the same number of hours in for that period of med school, residency. You know, you take nine, ten years of your life there where you're you're making a sacrifice for financially to learn your profession. And so I think many people see their peers from college that are doing very well, et cetera, during that period of time. And it's and so then they see older siblings that have done medicine, others that haven't done medicine. They start looking at the, the challenges. But certainly our the cost of a medical school education is significant. Did you see where NYU recent announcement that all tuition was going to be free? Yeah, when, and they just uh, actually gave some release debt to the um, to people as well, not just going forward, but in the past. And that's that's huge. 
um, wouldn't it be nice if this state had that kind of money um, to have that kind of endowment to to pay for the medical education of the students who want to be docs? I saw the guy, Ken, and his wife, Elaine, who are the co-founders of Home Depot, who were the people that gave the money. And he said he was doing it because he wanted more primary care doctors. And he felt like that might help low-income people who have a desire to be a doctor to get in the field. Let's hope it works, and I wish you. I wish you want to come do the same experiment in Arkansas, and then he could par- could compare mm-hmm. a rural state like ours to New York, and who benefits the most from that from that kind of investment into primary care. We totally believe primary care is so important to the health of our community. You know, for too long we've talked about health care instead mm-hmm. of about health, and the, the primary care physicians are the ones who can most likely improve the health of our state. We are ranked 46 in the country for um, health, um, so not where we need to be. The worst health? Yeah. 49th for obesity, only Alabama's worse. So these are areas where we can make marked improvement for our community. Those are almost educational um, tasks on how to eat right and how to exercise, though. Almost. I don't want to treat them after they're sick. I want to treat them before they get sick. Absolutely. And then all the other things for which you may need to be treated, your outcomes are better. Yes. We can decrease the risk of diabetes, the instance of diabetes for, second, for secondary to obesity, for type 2 diabetes. If we can see that those patients who have diabetes better manage their diabetes, well, then when you go in for another procedure like your gallbladder, your risk of complication goes down. Mm-hmm. Same with obesity. So we know that these things make a significant difference. And then we have all the social determinants of health care, which affect our state. What do you mean? Appropriate housing, food. We have too many people in our state who don't have enough food to get proper nourishment, like Healthy 14%. Food. Yeah. Yeah, they're eating cheap food. Yeah. Transportation so they can get to and from health care providers. Mm-hmm. So we're doing what we can to try to take health and health care to people. Mm, I haven't thought of it like that. I haven't thought about not being able to get to the doctor um arthritis you you started a hip and knee uh arkansas foundation it's a nonprofit. it's a research institute it's really looking at arthritis and the causes of arthritis what causes arthritis sure i should point out that hip knee arkansas is actually something i do when i was in private practice it still exists but most of our research is done through uams now so we have a very strong orthopedic research program it has grown significantly in the last five years run by Erin Mann and a PhD in biomechanics. She's absolutely an all-star team builder. So we have lots of people working with her. The students work with her, mm-hmm. postdoc, PhDs, um, much like your son, instead of um, those kind of projects. They're in our lab working on how do we treat these issues and how do we prevent them. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, and I'll answer your question about arthritis in a second. But mm-hmm. at the lab right now, the hip knee um, lab, we have this incredible um, equipment so that we can do great gait analysis and motion analysis studies. Um, When I was in private practice, we had a donor give us a significant amount of money so we could establish this. So we have a lab that has force plates so you can look at weight transfer, high-speed cameras to look at um, how the body moves, and we then, then do fun things with it. Like right now, we're looking at the golf swing. So we're looking at how does arthritis affect the hip and knee, and, the, and now the spine also in golf swing, and how do patients respond after joint replacement. 
we've been telling pe- patients wrong for years how to go back to golf after joint replacement. What do you mean? We've always said go back, use your short irons first, then use longer irons, and then get to your driver because you put less torque on your hips and on your hip doing that. In reality, the six iron and the driver are the same. Um, so it's really about how hard you swing, not about the club length. So Tiger Woods had back back problems. No doubt about it. And so we're looking at the golf swing after spine fusions as well, and which is what he had. Is there any sport that doesn't make that doesn't hurt a man? I mean, there's, I mean, you know, <laughs> basketball, football, golf. Um, certainly, they all have their uh, benefits, but they all have the potential risk of injury. And uh, post-injury is when we see arthritis in the knee oftentimes. So what is arthritis? Arthritis is when the cartilage starts to wear. So is everyone's have, cartilage going to wear out? Uh, probably, if you live long enough, you'll have some arthritis, but not, not so much you have to be treated by an orthopedic surgeon, and maybe and may not even by your primary care doc for that. But the prevalence is quite high. And... Um, if you have trauma to it, an injury, or if you're obese, it's certainly higher for the lower extremities. Well, I mean, I'm thin. Why do I have back aches? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm back ache is a multifactorial thing. So we all have back pain. But don't you think it's cartilage that comes in the back of your spine? In that, in that. Well, you have disc there that um, have some cartilage in them, and they from fiber cartilage, and certainly you can have deterioration <laughs> there with aging. Um, you, just, you really wanted to hear with aging, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I was just about to say you could leave that word out, <laughs> yeah. <didn't you? laughs> but, but our back sees lots of load, right? Yes. So we do lots of things, twisting, turning, bending. It's, and women uh, carry purses everywhere. So what do you think about steroid shots? Uh, Speaking of, I've heard, I mean, they will cure any kind of inflammation you have in your body. But I have heard that they, and I don't know, or that they are not particularly good for your bones. Being an orthopedic surgeon... What do you think? Great question. So steroid shots really don't cure anything. They treat symptoms. Right. So um, I can tell you I've had steroid shots. I've had steroid shots to my back by Dr. Gorey at UAMS, who's absolutely a magician with a needle. And um, I'd do it again in a heartbeat if I had the same problem. But I had disc problems, getting uh, pain, spasms, some nerve irritation. It works great for that. Now, getting repeated injections to your knee for arthritis over time, you can do some damage to it. And if you have too many steroid injections or take steroids systemically, then you can get other side effects. The one we see is, in addition to osteoporosis or softening of the bones, more common in women, is we see something called avascular necrosis, which is loss of blood supply to the ball part of the hip joint more commonly. What so, did you call it? Avascular necrosis. It's got a bunch of other names as well, but... It just means that the ball portion of the ball and socket loses its blood supply, and then it collapses, and you need a joint replacement after that. So we're careful with steroids. So you want to do aerobics? Does that keep your blood supply up? So you need to do cardio all the time? That's got, it certainly has its benefits, but it won't help your hips as far as blood supply. They're unrelated. What this does is a, blood supply come from? Where does that? So we all have small artery, arteries and arterioles that go to the bone. And for some reason, when you take steroids, drink alcohol, get the bends, there's actually 60-something causes of this process. You, you, there's something pathologically that happens. It increases the pressure in the, the hip joint that the blood can get there, but it can't get out, and it gets a kind of a clogged situation. And so you end up with this problem. Fortunately, it doesn't happen very often, except for, for patients who, are, who have exposure to these things on high doses. Like alcohol and steroid shots. Right. Uh oh. (laughs) (laughs) 
So you're an author. You lecture. You said a little bit you're going to go lecture about uh, – well, I'm going to tell everybody – that just tuned in that you're listening to up in your business with me carrie mccoy and i'm speaking today with dr lowry barnes an orthopedic surgeon in little rock arkansas who is internationally known for his patents and innovative approach to hip and knee replacement surgery if you missed the first part of the show you should go listen to the podcast next week because everybody's got arthritis everybody's got questions everybody's if you live long enough you're going to have a few aches and pains and he says you say no pain pills. Narcotic. No narcotic no pain narc- pills. Over-the-counter pain pills work great. You bet. They really do. And if you get immune to one, just switch to another one. Absolutely. Don't you think? No doubt about it. So you're an author. What do you write about? Hip and knee replacements. Oh, so yeah. we, we publish articles on our, research, on our research, on our patient series, and um, how patients do with certain procedures. And so, And that's what our department does. It's not just... Me, we have, certainly have a group of four hip and knee surgeons who do this together, but we have 26 orthopedic surgeons in the department who are working in different areas, and we're all looking at what we do and how we do it and what we can do to move the field forward. That's so now why. that you're an academic, you, were, you said earlier that you've been out of private practice for about four years, I think you said. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that you're an academic, uh, I guess you lecture all the time. Well, I, I lecture probably the same amount as I always did because most, most of my lecturing is nationally and internationally for meetings. That the medical school, there's not a whole lot of orthopedic lecturing during the um, medical school years. They learn from rotating with us. And so going to our clinic, going to the operating room with us and learning that way. Mm-hmm. But we teach residents as well over a five-year period. What do you want your legacy to be? Great question. Um, hopefully right now I'd say it's um, – I'm in a second career. I still may want to have a third career. We'll I see. I agree. I agree. I think change is good. I agree. But um, right now, my legacy is to make orthopedics better in our state and improve the health of Arkansas through UAMS and what we can do to make the state better. Don't you wish wisdom was transferable? No doubt about it. I wish that somebody had transferred some to me. You wouldn't listen. <laughs> good point. That's the problem. <laughs> That's right. But at least people are paying money to come hear you talk, so maybe they're going to listen to what you have to say. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I have a gift for you. Well, it's, thank it, you. I love it. It's a U.S. and an Arkansas desk set. You can put it in your office. We're lucky to have UAMS. One of the things that makes a great city is a research college because it brings in talent and it brings in patients who find out about the city of Little Rock and often are surprised at how nice it is. It's a great place. It's a great place to live. Any advice you'd give yourself from 20 years ago? Listen more, talk less. (laughs) I just learned how to do that. Congratulations. I'm still trying. No, you're a great listener. Thanks again so much. I really enjoyed visiting with you and meeting you. You're a special guy. You're kind. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. You're welcome. For those of listeners who might have a great entrepreneurial story that they'd like to share, I would love to hear from you. And you can send me a brief bio. You can send your contact info to Carrie at flagandbanner.com, and uh, somebody will be in touch. We are booked all the way through December with guests. Thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening. And if you haven't, then you haven't been listening. 
And that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.